Hello, welcome to Rusty Sonnets, the podcast where I take an old poem, read it out, give it a good going over before I wander off on one. My name is Niall and today we will be looking at Dover Beach by Matthew Arnold. Matthew Arnold is a Victorian era poet. He was a professor of poetry at Oxford University, so that's a very eminent position. And he is a poet whose most famous poem, which is probably the one I'm reading today, Dover Beach, is often associated with that Victorian anxiety of the retreat of religion and the retreat of God and the retreat of faith and the march of other stuff, not just science, but the kind of maybe a moral vacuum, a moral uncertainty. Um, I'm getting ahead of myself, aren't I? I'm already analysing the poem. So what I'm going to do is quickly run through some aspects of his life, his biography, things that I have skimmed from the Poetry Foundation. Once again, thank you, Poetry Foundation. And uh, that I have skimmed from Wikipedia as well. I'm just going to have to admit that now, just in case I, I uh, someone's just had some mischievous little... Uh, Wikipedia editing session and I read out something like that he was the world's um, greatest ventriloquist of the Victorian era or something else that's completely untrue but just happened to get added by some scallywag just before I did my podcast or something while I was doing a last minute skim of Wikipedia because I have not prepared for this one very well I have to say so anyway let's just run through some details of his life because I always think it's good to get that biographical and cultural background out the way first then we're going to dive into the poem um, which I uh, I really enjoy reading this poem. I enjoy reading it out. I enjoy analysing it. It's a poem that I've looked at with my class several times when I'm teaching poetry and I always forget loads about it and loads of things that I remember about it. So, so, so which is like, I, I like that in a way because sometimes it's good to come to, to a poem every now and again and still have that sense of newness and ignorance. I mean, if there's one thing that's good about my character is I have that sense of ignorance that I bring to everything. Um, glossed over by this uh, absolute Dunning-Kruger certainty in my own brilliance. So let's have a look at these lifetime details. He was a poet and a critic. So someone very much who kind of jumped between poetry and prose uh, throughout his career. I mean, obviously being a critic and a poet gave him that... Um, gave him that aptitude that, that that led to that career move as the Oxford professor of poetry he lived from 1822 to 1888 so he was a, he was the son of the famous Thomas Arnold of rugby school he was a, he was a he was a famous headmaster of rugby school did a lot of um I guess innovations of education um, a very religious man as well rugby school was a private school um, people probably most famous as the school in which the sport rugby was was invented so rugby is famous because they were playing football now as far as I know back in Victoria like football started I know this is a diversion right but football started literally with an inflated pig's bladder that a few hundred drunk people kicked from one end of a town to another and then just got more drunk at the end of it. And there weren't really goals or anything like that. They just kicked it about, sort of trampled grannies and children, went, Oy! and just, I mean, I mean, the hooliganism seemed to come first before the sport, really. Um, so it got more formalised, the rules of football, over the years. And um, eventually... Some form of football, which I guess was kind of close to the, 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 the rules. I mean, we have Aussie rules football. We have Gaelic football. We have lots of different kinds of football. But, uh, some, but basically, they were playing some form of football at uh, rugby school. And one of the kids suddenly picked up the football and just ran 
to the other end of the field and plonked it down on the ground and everyone went hooray we've invented a new sport whereas like that that must have happened in a private school so so that's what he did he ran he did like the equivalent of a touchdown or a or a try in rugby and everyone just went yay new sport because that's that's what happens in private schools or public schools as we call them in England even though public schools in America are what we would call a state school so he did it he ran across the line plonked it down this has got nothing to do with the poet Matthew Arnold and they invented the new sport of rugby um if that had happened in a ta- in a state school he'd have just got a kick in and no 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 nothing would have been invented but sports new sports seem to be invented in monasteries and private schools and debtors prisons it seems to be where this the, the, the kind of cauldron of new new sports seems to be invented so back to Matthew Arnold his dad was the headmaster at rugby school Matthew Arnold went to rugby school a few times he also went to Winchester College and he got a scholarship to Balliol in Oxford um, I can't even remember what he studied because of my Wikipedia glossing but he was friends with Arthur Hugh Clough, who is a poet and the devoted assistant to uh, Florence Nightingale. But he had a good lot of correspondence with Arthur Hugh Clough. Now, um, when he was, you know, a man of letters and a well-known poet, he was he was referred to by the theologian G.K. Chesterton as perhaps the most serious man in the land, something like that. I've written it down somewhere. Um, where's the quote? But yeah, but you know, so Chesterton thought he was like the most serious man. But by all accounts, when he was a child, he was quite irreverent and um, a, a bit naughty. And when he went to university in Oxford, he became a bit of a full-on dandy. So he didn't really cut his hair. Um, and Clough sort of wrote facetiously. Clough wrote, Matt is full of Parisian theatre in general and Rachel in special. Now, Rachel was a Parisian actress, a very well-known and famous one who Arnold wrote about. But he also followed her all the way to Paris and watched her every night for six weeks. So he got quite obsessed with her. So he wasn't really that focused on his studies. He got a second class degree and it was meant to be excessive sort of coaching and guidance that, that, that dragged him over that particular finish line. And... Um, Afterwards, he got work with Lord Lansdowne. Um, he became his private secretary. Now, as now in between all this, I mean, I guess what what happened was he kind of moved from this being this very uh, this Parisian style fop to the more serious man. Um, if you see a picture of him, uh, just have a look at a photo of Matthew Arnold because he looks like he looks like Abraham Lincoln cosplaying as Wolverine. He has a very distinctive look about him that seems to say he's a very serious Victorian gentleman or maybe he's having a bit of a laugh. I don't know. Having a bit of a bubble. I'm not sure. So, but he became a more serious man. And he was a devoted scholar of um, Spinoza and Goethe and Ralph Waldo Emerson, particularly his famous essay, Self-Reliance. And it seemed that this is that he was also very into the Stoics, and so he seemed to live this life where he uh, he wanted to be, I guess, um, he he wanted to sort of avoid the finer things in life, and he wanted to find that center within the human the humanistic soul, that solid center somewhere. And I wonder if this if this was this religious turning away from the god of religion. So his religion, and I think his religion really 
I think I think if two things have a have a bearing on understanding the poem we're about to read, it is his religious sensibilities and his romantic sensibilities. So let's jump back into his romantic sensibilities. He had a, an affair, a sort of a tempestuous romantic interlude with a young woman called Marguerite in Switzerland. Um, shortly after, I guess, shortly after he left university, um, but eventually he settled down. Um, with um, Francis Lucy, who was a daughter of a high court judge. And the private secretary, well, Lord Lansdowne, who was private secretary too, made him an inspector of Her Majesty's schools. So, you know, his relationship with Lucy was, was uh, or with Francis Lucy, was more, perhaps more grounded, perhaps a more grounded relationship. I think a lot of us can see these analogues in our lives of these crazy kind of young relationships we had. And then normally we settle down with someone who's more suited to us in different ways. Someone that we genuinely can spend the rest of our lives with um, rather than someone who might lead to just a kind of murder or something like that, or just whatever else, just your whole life falling to pieces in a blaze of passion. So this... um, so I think that the love that he has for Francis Lucy factors into into how he addresses her in in Dover Beach because it is very much a love poem. Now his his religious sensibilities again there is some debate as to what his religious sensibilities would to were, but I um I once again it it is meant to be that he rejected all everything supernatural about Christianity, and he um. If anything, he subscribed to a sort of Spinozan monism rather than monotheism. Um, Spinoza believing that everything, believing that God did not create the world, the world was in God. Uh, God is this sort of this preeminent existence, perhaps related to the Hinduistic idea of Brahman as well. Just this idea of God being everything, the grounding of everything. Uh, or that's, you know, the Spinozan God, which, as many pointed out, is almost like an atheistic God. So this 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 kind of gaudy atheism <laughs> Arnold seemed to subscribe to. Um, I think all of these factor into Dover Beach. I think I've glossed over his his uh, biography uh, for long enough. I think you guys know enough about the background. We can talk about more when we when we read the poem. So I think maybe we should just get into the poem um, because there's plenty to get our teeth into. Yes, I've already spoken about the themes of the poem and who the poem is addressed to. But there's plenty more in this poem to get our teeth into. So I think we'll have we'll have, we'll have plenty to look at and, and talk about after I've read it. So Dover Beach by Matthew Arnold. The sea is calm tonight. The tide is full. The moon lies fair. Upon the straits, on the French coast, the light gleams and is gone. The cliffs of England stand, glimmering and vast, out in the tranquil bay. Come to the window, sweet is the night air, only from the long line of spray where the sea meets the moon-blanched land, listen, you hear the grating roar of pebbles which the waves draw back and fling at their return up the high strand. Begin and cease and then again begin, with tremulence cadence slow and bring the eternal note of sadness in. Sophocles long ago heard it on the Aegean and it brought into his mind the turbid ebb and flow of human misery. We find also in the sound and thought hearing it by this distant northern sea. 
The sea of faith was once, too, at the full and round earth's shore, lay like the folds of a bright girdle furled. But now I only hear its melancholy long withdrawing roar, retreating to the breath of a night wind, down the vast edges drear and naked shingles of the world. Ah, love, let us be true to one another, for the world which seems to lie before us like a land of dreams, so various, so beautiful, so new, hath really neither joy, nor love, nor light, nor certitude, nor peace, nor help for pain. And we are here as on a darkling plain, swept with confused alarms of struggle and flight, where ignorant armies clash by night. I think without doubt you get that idea of the um of the lack of faith, <laughs> you know, the, the retreat of faith. One of my first responses to this poem, to the argument of this poem, of what I take to be the argument of this poem, is he really isn't actually I don't think he's really actually mourning the retreat of God. And this could be because he still believed in a kind of God, albeit a Spinozan God, which is almost indistinguishable from atheism in a way. Um, I'm sure not everyone will agree with that, but it's, uh, it, you know, it has that um, pantheistic quality, pantheism being that actually, no, he wasn't a pantheist. I think I, I need to get this right. Um, Spinozan monism is not the same as pantheism. Pantheism is basically the idea that nature or the universe is God. And I think um, that that kind of monism of Spinoza is nature is only a part of God. God is, is the vastness of everything and nature is only a part of it. I hope I hope I've made a good distinction there. Theologians, feel free to write into me, uh, rustysonnets at gmail dot com, or uh, tweet me at poet Nile uh, at Twitter. So the argument is this idea where we begin with this very the first stanza is very descriptive, and it really is quite. I think we notice that there are many modern qualities to this poem. Um, some of it is in the language, how, how, the, how the, there are no inversions and there are no, he's not cramming the language in to fit the meter. It feels very, very natural. And I think the line breaks, if you look at the line breaks of the poem as well, there's a sort of modernistic sensibility to how the lines are broken. Um, but, but the line breaks actually are more dictated, if anything, by a, um, a, very, a very strange and concise and elaborate rhyme scheme which we will talk about in a little while um, but the line lengths also they're not very uniform some of the lines are longer than others and again this is more of a modern characteristic within the poems um, so the first few lines of the poem uh, the opening stanza is just very descriptive the sea is calm tonight the tide is full the moon lies fair upon the straits on the french coast the light gleams and is gone the cliffs of england stand glimmering and vast out in the tranquil bay um, you can see france if, if you haven't been to um, dover or even other parts of uh, kent as well the kentish coast you can actually see across to france uh, people are often surprised when they didn't know this that actually mainland France is closer to England than Ireland is, or uh, even Ireland is to, to mainland Britain. Uh, it's you know the actual you could during the Ice Age you could quite easily walk 
from France to England because the ice kind of sucked up most of the water and there was a land bridge which we refer to as Doggerland between France and England. So there is this, yeah, you, you, he's not exaggerating when he says you can see the French coast um, from, from Dover. So again, very descriptive. Come to the window, he addresses his wife here. Sweet is the night air. Only from the long line of spray where the sea meets the moon-blanched land, listen. You hear the grating roar of pebbles which the waves draw back and fling at their return up the high strand. Begin and cease and then again begin with tremulous cadence slow and bring the eternal note of sadness in. We, Yes, he addresses his, his, his wife partway through the, through the stanza, but... It's only really we get we get into metaphorical or figurative language at the very last line in this stanza. So there's something quite Victorian and even quite modern about this opening stanza in the sense that there is no there is no commentary. Yes, he addresses his wife, but there isn't really any commentary on this scene until almost the very end of it. And uh, the idea of the, the eternal note of sadness um, being compared to the retreating sound i don't know if it's the retreating of a rolling in sound of a tide uh, i guess it is the grating roar of pebbles which the waves draw back and fling so there is that we know the sound i mean it's such a beautiful description of the auditory quality of the tide on a shingle beach um, and that 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 kind of sound that draining sound of a tide being pulled out so yes he does start the commentary and then he launches full on into this commentary in the second stanza sophocles heard it on the aegean and it brought into his mind the turbid ebb and flow of human misery we find also in the sound of thought hearing it by this distant northern sea so Sophocles, of course, being the great writer of tragedy, um, I think people, I, I don't know the specific one, but people refer to the tragedy of Antigone in this particular one. Um, but as we know, Sophocles, if there's, you know, for Greek tragedy, I think it's the, the great lesson of Greek tragedy is, is fate is not in our in our hands. We we are the puppets. <laughs> so, you know, um, we, the, 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 there is a, a kind of, there is a humanistic lesson actually from from Greek tragedy, which is that which is, um, so if we take away human agency from tragedy, from a terrible happening, I mean, of course, people can be responsible for bad things happening, but ultimately, we are kind of caught up in in fate, and so there's there's that powerlessness to it, and I think that's what he really describes here in this stanza. Um, I also like this idea, of, you know, so he's talking about human, the turbid ebb and flow of human misery, these these tides that we're caught up in. Um, lovely line break here, the fourth line. So um, the third line, it goes into his mind, the turbid ebb and flow, fourth line of human misery. Then there's a semicolon and we, but then the line breaks and then it's find also in the sound a thought. But uh, yeah, um, you know I like my line breaks, but there's something very, not only just very modern and almost fractured about that kind of line break, but the way it sort of really shoves the emphasis on that shift from Sophocles to him and his love at the window looking out at the beach. Um, 
I should add that this was written in 1851. So that was the year in which he got married. And so it was probably his honeymoon, probably a honeymoon in Dover, as people would have had at the time. Um, so he's, he's being an, he's being the great. You can see why he's the most serious man, according to Chesterton here, if he's acting like this on his honeymoon. <laughs> Nothing like uh, getting married and beginning your your nuptial bliss um, with existential dread for the uh, for the cogs of history that we are caught in like screaming rodents caught within the blades of a lawnmower. So anyway, you know, that, that kind of stuff really gets you in the mood for love, I find. You know, Barry White couldn't have said it better himself. So this distant northern sea, I don't know why I find that interesting as well. I guess where is, you know, the idea again of... of um, you know, the English, the English, if there's one thing you can say about the English, right? And I say this as someone who's kind of grown up, I guess, as a kind of Englishman. I have Irish parents, but I have grown up in England. And I'm sure that a lot of my, while I can still feel quite Irish among English people, I can imagine that all my relatives and many Irish people would just immediately just identify me as some kind of English fool. So, you know, some English langer. So I would... um I would accept that my in-betweenness as someone uh, of of uh, of uh, with migrant parents, as I think many people with migrant parents might feel the same. Uh, but but this calling it a distant northern sea seems to go against this idea of the English of kind of literally centering themselves as they did on the maps. You know, as a, you know the, the actual map that we are all used to. I mean, many of us know is the one that kind of sticks England in the middle of the world, and then has uh, America on one side and and uh, asia on the other side so um but but to call it a distant northern sea um what is he distant from it's almost like he's centering um athens actually more than anything and he's speaking of the distance of the strangeness of this little island <laughs> this little bloody island with massive ideas about itself at the edge of some miserable bloody sea i'm trying not to swear here bloody's all right though isn't it bloody's pg so he takes another leap here. So he takes another leap in the next stanza. The sea of faith was once too at the fall and round earth's shore. I don't know why. It's like a big old... Um, I don't know the technical word behind this, but it's uh, but, but there's, the, there's an episode of The Simpsons. Whenever the students, my students, kind of say the something of something, so normally the noun of... Um, some kind of item, object, and then at the end of it, of some concept. You can do it with anything, you know, the computer of Roth, the mango of solitude, the um, the handbag of funkiness. You, you can just, you can make these up all day. And I sometimes find them a bit lazy in a poem, you know, when he suddenly goes, the sea of faith. And I'm like, oh my goodness me. Okay, you're talking about the sea, and now you're talking about, you know, you spelled it out quite subtly before this moment when you just say the sea of faith now of course the sea of faith is a term that people use and i've heard the sea of love as well um tom waits i do believe but just um where am i where am i i've, I've talked myself into some weird corner here haven't i yes i'm reminded of an episode of uh, the simpsons where uh, homer has to he's part of this sort of secret society i think called the uh 
Is it the Stonecutters or I'm getting mixed up with something else? But anyway, he's, he's in some Masonic Lodge. And he does, and he wipes his mouth with their, their sacred scroll and they put the, the stone of penitence on him and he has to drag this stone on a chain around with him. And then, uh, but then he does something and, and it suddenly makes him their leader. I don't know what, but he suddenly becomes their leader. And they say, take away the stone of penitence um, and, and attach him to the stone of triumph. <laughs> and nothing has changed. It's just a stone. I don't know why. I'm always reminded of that when I, when I hear these kind of these, uh, again, these, I don't know what this device is called. When I hear someone talking about the, um, the the pork scratching of empathy or something like that, so um, yeah. So anyway, let's get into it. The sea of faith was once too at the fall and round Earth's shore. Okay, I do. I do find. It's, I know it's a wonderful poem. I'm just saying I find that a bit bit shoehorned and plodding. Lay like the folds of a bright girdle furled, and now I only hear its melancholy, long withdrawing roar, retreating to the breath. It's a lovely line break here, retreating to the breath and then of the night wind. Down the vast edges drear and naked shingles of the world. So I like the tension there. So, you know, the, the withdrawing roar, I guess, of faith. Um, retreating to the breath. Now, I think before that line break, it's like the breath of the person. Maybe it's faith within. And that presages, presages, I don't know how to say that word. Don't judge me on that. I'm an autodidact. Get out of it. So it presages, you know, the withdrawing breath. It's almost like he's saying we reclaim faith, you know, in the human heart, in the human chest, in the belly. Um, but he doesn't say that. It's a The breath is the breath of the night wind down the vast edges drear and naked shingles of the world. So it's almost like it's becoming hopeful for a second where faith retreats into the human soul. But no, it's not. No, it's just retreating to some dark part of a natural world instead. The final stanza. Ah, love, let us be true to one another. So in a way, that's reclaiming what I just took from that line break. For the world which seems to lie before us like a land of dreams, so various, so beautiful, so new. Oh, look, he's getting back into that romantic mood of his honeymoon, isn't he? Bless him. I'm sure magic's going to happen tonight. Have really neither joy nor love nor light. OK, maybe he isn't. No, no. Maybe they've done all that and they're already tired of each other. Nor certitude, nor peace, nor help for pain. And we are here as on a darkling plain, swept with confused alarms of struggle and flight, where ignorant armies clash by night. So um, this this final, so yes, he starts off kind of saying, oh, we can love each other because there's no, the world is full of pain and misery. I mean, I don't know, maybe that's a, maybe that's still a precursor to getting it on on your honeymoon. I don't know. Come, come, my love, the world's full of pain, but uh, in this little room, there'll be, there's a lot of love. And then the Barry White starts off. I don't know. I, I, I Okay, just think about him and his little Wolverine chops and weirdly parted hair and Abraham I'm sure I'm sure that does it for someone so um there's a final thing here final reference the about the invisible armies ignorant armies sorry clash by night and we don't know you know like there's meant to be some universal agreement because again he was ever the classicist as many Victorian poets were at the time so it's, an, so it's a reference to Thucydides um, who wrote about the Battle of um, Epipoli, 
Epipoli. And in this battle, these two armies met. Uh, they had a battle at night. Someone agreed. Let's have a battle at night, shall we? And there was a sort of confusion among the moonlight in which they couldn't really make out or they couldn't believe almost. Yes, they could just about make out in the moonlight who was friend and who was foe. But there was this doubt about it, this confusion. And so, of course, he's 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 perhaps using this confusion to speak about our relationship to the world. Of course, there is a a redemptive hint in the poetry, which is we have each other. Love seems to be the thing that we can take refuge in. Um, because the world is something alien now faith and again i think that this poem isn't necessarily i don't think he misses god he misses faith faith being that cord that perhaps ties us to the world but no longer ties us to the world and how we must be tied to each other instead seems to be the argument of the poem to me now i've spoken about the line lengths and i've spoken about um, the line breaks and I've spoken about the diction of the poem as well and all these modern qualities but something that, that I, I love when I when I look at this poem with students is how um, it, when we read the first four lines the sea is calm tonight the tide is full the moon lies fair upon the straits on the French coast the light gleams and is gone the cliffs of England stand so we know oh wait a minute we, we, we notice a rhyme in the first three lines, we know that right that, that the rhyme of the first line rhymes with the end. So tonight rhymes with light. But this rhyme scheme just goes just goes off the handle pretty quickly. And now, as far as I know, let me read out. So as you know, when we write out write out a rhyme scheme, we tend to um use a little letter to say what the rhyme is, and then the next line with that end rhyme, we, we use that same letter. So, for instance, if we have a sonnet, the rhyme scheme is normally, let's say, a Shakespearean sonnet. It's uh, normally A, B, A, B, C, D, C, D, and then um, E, F, E, F, and then finally a couplet of G, G. So those are the kind of, that, that's how we map out where the rhymes land and which, will write, which line rhymes with each other. Let me read out the rhyme scheme of this whole poem. This is going to be the greatest listening experience you've had of anything recently. I'm telling you now. This is just going to be, this is going to be electric, like uh, like the existential dread of uh, of 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 Matthew Arnold's wedding night. So, A B A C D B D C E F G H F H I J I K J K L M N O M P O N Q R R Q A S S A A. There we go. So the funny thing is it does sort of end with these couplets, but you can notice that sometimes the gap between some of the rhymes. So I think um, if I look at rhyme B, um, it, it finds its partner. So the second line is rhyme B and then it finds its partner after another um, another four lines afterwards. Um, and it gets even crazier. I'm trying to find the biggest, trying to find the biggest gap between rhymes in this poem, and I think it might be the e rhyme, which is partway through. Raw doesn't find its accompanying rhyme <laughs> ever. By the look of it, I can't find the e rhyme. Maybe there's one. Is there another? I picked the one rhyme in the poem that I can't find another. For. Oh yeah, sure, there it is. I thought it was so. It rhymes with sure 
so I know I've got this rhyme scheme wrong already. The one, the thing, if you really enjoyed me writing, read, writing out, the, if you really enjoyed me reading out all those letters, just be assured that it was a complete lie already because I've already realised I've missed out, messed it up. So yeah, raw rhymes with sure. Sure appears, um, and then raw reappears again in the final in the in the third stanza. Sorry, not the final stanza. In the third stanza many lines later so what you find is yes there are other rhyming words throughout the poem but sometimes it's 20 something lines before the other rhyme comes in it's a really interesting mixed up and it's interesting how the rhyme scheme starts off kind of regular and then just goes all over the place and then becomes quite regular again at the end with these quite neat rhyming couplets that tail the poem um is this a modernistic thing as well is this the idea of a tri the, the i don't know the blooming trying not to swear about poems but is this you know the 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 idea of the waves itself going in and out you know or is it the chaos and new order finding itself afterwards um i have no idea but it's such an interesting effect and it's i love the way that it does feel as many commentators have said like a very modern poem a poem that could have been written in the sort of early to mid 20th century um by a parisian poet rather than many of the sort of English poets that was still you know apart from Eliot obviously and poets like Pound but you know just it feels like a very modern poem um, and it's interesting because Victorian we normally associate sort of these rhyming couplets a very sort of um, the, the, a respect for antiquity and I mean there is a respect for antiquity in this poem but you know the, the, there's a certain rigid formalism to a lot of Victorian poetry um, not all Victorian poetry, but just, but just, uh, you know, it was that last sort of hurrah for formal poetry before modernism came along. And this poem doesn't sort of go along those lines. I mean, some of his other poems are very formal, but this is, uh, yeah, again, a very modern poem. So I really, I, I, I think that's, I think I've said enough about the poem now. Um, was I going to wander off on any on about anything? I haven't got Ric Flair here today. I, I didn't. It's on another phone. <laughs> so i i can't just woo there we go there's your rick flair woo um dover is interesting i think dover is a very interesting bit of geography um because it sort of signifies so much about the english mentality um dover is of course where where you tend to see um where where you know where that it signifies that that frontier or that barrier that boundary between england and europe and I hear that there is a bit of a fractious relationship between England and Europe. And I intentionally say England and Europe because Scotland had other ideas about their relationship with Europe. So and Northern Ireland did, too. So um, and I think Wales, I think Wales kind of went with the English. I could be wrong. But this idea that the symbolism of Dover, um, the White Cliffs of Dover, there'll be bluebirds over the White Cliffs of Dover as a wartime song. Um, you know, it, it's always had this kind of martial quality to it. Um, I think the cliffs, you know, Dover has been used and that martial quality of Dover, I think I can't remember if uh, during the one of the big naval battles, one of the big military commanders was stood there at the cliffs of Dover while the battle was going on. But um, but but just uh, but Dover always has that quality, that idea of, of that kind of frontier, and obviously this very distinctive White Cliffs of Dover as well. But um, this is borrowed now, of course, in the anxiety about migrants. 
uh, that's stoked up, especially around Brexit. And you might remember a certain gentleman called Nigel Farage, who the shy retiring man who just wants to live a quiet life. I'm being very facetious here. Um, people might remember that during that during a pandemic, which we're still going through. How's it going for you guys, by the way? I hope you're having a great time. Um, but with this, and I think actually, you know, Dover Beach, there's this idea of, I think one reason why I did pick this poem, <laughs> I, I was going to do this during lockdown and stuff has just kept me from doing it. But, um, you know, the idea of, of people being locked in their house and looking out at an uncertain world, I felt was kind of fitting. But anyway, back to lockdown. So while most of us were, were in lockdown, and trying to observe rules, Nigel Farage decided that he became suddenly, despite a pandemic happening, and I think, you know, if you're looking for things to be worried about, pandemic's pretty good thing to be, you know, you, you, you got it right there, gift wrap, there you go, be worried about that. But Nigel Farage sort of was, sort of, no, how can this, um, how can this make me anxious about brown bodies being present in this country? Seemed to be Nigel Farage's way of looking at it. Um, and so he just went down to Dover so that he could try and spot little rafts of brown bodies um, coming into England, um, that seemed to be the big issue for him. Not this bloody virus, but um, but uh, just uh, trying. He basically tried to kind of try and keep the old flame of the old racism going. Um, I find it acts. You know, I mean, this, it says a lot really during a pandemic to become worried about something. I think as trivial as that. Um, I, I I think your sense of reality really has to be pretty damn skewed um so but but yeah this is this idea of you know and, and of course the whiteness of the cliff so you know dover is representative of so many things and just and the final hilarious detail about this about the whole brexit thing is that dover might become its own frontier no man's land um part of kent because of um the the agreements or the um obviously there is frictionless trade at the moment between the EU and mainland Britain because of um, just the, the extension we're in the kind of interim period of Brexit Brexit has technically happened and we're just working out all our little trade deals now so we kind of the relationship is as is but technically we're no longer in the European Union and um, one of the solutions is to turn Dover into some sort of massive customs area um, so there'll be another border at Dover, so which is hilarious. I mean, just that there was anxiety already about creating borders in Ireland and destroying the peace process um, because of it. But now there's going to be some weird Dover belt border as well. Um, it sounds like it's all going swimmingly. So I don't know. Um, I guess the, the idea of it, that there seems to be so much about Dover, um, that part of Kent, it really does seem to be a massive symbolic part of the, the identity of the English. Um, and the English, and I speak as someone who in some ways is English. Um, I speak as someone to say I wish the English would grow up and stop thinking that they were special. Um, there are so many ways in which we could be leaders of the world. Um, by leading from a good example, rather than leading from some idea of when we were uh, the bully boys of the world and some terrible bloody empire that I'm glad is gone uh, but but unfortunately the English English exceptionalism seems to be there and seems to be I mean seems to be dragging us down I don't want to end this on a bum note guys <laughs> so um, I'll stop wandering off on one about those things I love about England you know I wrote a poem about England and England is so much more than this empirical 
uh, imperial, I should say. There's nothing bloody empirical about it. But this imperial mentality, this colonial mentality, there's an amazing, there is an amazing prehistory within England. Um, there are great, you know, when we look at English poets in this podcast and uh, be it Byron or Shelley or Blake, Shakespeare, for God's sake, um, there is so much to be proud of in England. I don't know why we pick this whole idea of us being the bully boys of the world, you know, as the thing to be proud of, or some many English people do. Um, there are many ways in which we can still be be a light for the world, for the world to look up to. And uh, maybe that could be as an environmental power or something like that. But firstly, we can't do that until we get over this idea that we are still some kind of big commandeering presence in the world. We really aren't. Um, so anyway, <laughs> on that cheerful note, English people, I love you. England, I love you. But uh, come on, let's 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 grow up now. Hope you have a good one. Um, if you enjoy this podcast, please share it with someone, you know, be it on social media, ear to ear, face to face. I'm not going to pimp my uh, pay me money things because I've not I've not earned it. I've not earned it. I've got to get more regular with this. Next one will be Paradise but Lost Book Club. We'll be back to that. I hope you're doing well. Um, I'm glad I've got this one out of the way. And uh, hopefully the next one will. I know I said that last time. Hopefully, hopefully the next one will arrive a bit sooner. I'll start reading my Paradise Lost next chapter. I think it's chapter five right now. Bye.